I'm Greg Paris. Uh, welcome to you. Um, of course, we're all mourning the passing of Dr. Graham. And in my humble opinion, he was one of the two great Christian icons of the 20th century and perhaps uh, of many centuries, heaven only knows. But Mother Teresa and Dr. Billy Graham, in my mind, the two most prominent and iconic Christian figures of our lifetime. And we, uh, we mourn his passing but celebrate his homecoming and the beautiful reunions he's having with so many. Billy Graham preached to 215 million people face-to-face -face in his lifetime in 185 countries. It's just staggering, mind-boggling. I suspect that there isn't a single person, certainly not in North America, who has come to a meaningful faith in Jesus over the last 80 years, who doesn't have at least a direct or some indirect reference to the ministry of Dr. Billy Graham. Amazing, amazing life. This Wednesday, his body will lie in state in the rotunda of the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C., only the 36th person in history who's done so. And it is a fitting honor. And uh, congratulations to anyone who came to the conclusion that that was an appropriate response. His funeral will be on Friday at the Billy Graham Library back in North Carolina under a tent. His first revival in 1949 in Los Angeles was under a big tent, the Canvas Cathedral, as they described it. And so they thought it fitting to have his funeral under a big tent as well. So that will be an invitation-only event on Friday this coming week. We still haven't gotten the invitation. I, I'm not sure, what the, not sure what the problem is. But a number of years ago, I was at the Billy Graham Retreat Center at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. And it was kind of after hours, uh, our final meetings were concluded. And I went down into a lower level there at the Cove and discovered this room full of memorabilia. And there was case after case of photographs of presidents and prime ministers and dignitaries around the world, special gifts that had been exchanged with Dr. Graham, and of course, notations about all of this. It was just a wonderful display and quite large, quite significant. Down at the end of the display, there were a couple of items that were so large they wouldn't fit in the case, and they were sitting on the floor. And one of them was a pulpit which had a description on it that this is the pulpit that Dr. Graham used for about 25 years of his crusade ministry. So apparently everywhere Billy Graham went, you know, if he went to London for a crusade, for example, they took Billy Graham and his pulpit. And so here was this sacred desk sitting on the floor in this display. And there was a, it was roped off, you know, and lots of signs, don't cross the rope, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is before, you know, there was a camera in every room and no one was down there, and I got long legs, and so I, don't tell anybody I did this, but I, I just wa stepped over the barrier, <laughs> and all I did was I walked over to this pulpit, this sacred desk, and I stood behind it, and I just stood there for about 10 minutes. Don't expect to see another one like him, not in our lifetimes, and maybe never again. An unusual, 
manifestation of God's grace through the life of one person. Amazing. So I hope that you'll be able to tune into some of the special celebrations this coming week in his honor and memory, and it'll be an inspiration to you. Today we want to talk more about prayer. Thank you for bringing your Bibles with you. If you have a Bible, our text this morning is Psalm 103. I'm going to read the first 12 verses there. We are in 40 days of prayer here at Union Chapel in the season of Lent from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, and we are trusting that God is going to inspire us, encourage us to pray. Today I want to use as our topic, who do you think you're talking to? In other words, we want to better understand who God is, who this God is that we are praying to as a motivation for our prayer. So if you have your Bibles, Psalm 103, our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able, thank you for doing that. This is a Psalm of David. Again, trying to comprehend better who this God is. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now everyone say, thank God. Thank God. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Let me put this uh, statement on the screen for you. This is really the premise of my message today. Your understanding of what God is really like shapes everything else in your life, including your prayer life. Your understanding of who God is shapes everything else. Now, we live in a time when people feel free to speculate about who God is. So you hear people all the time saying, well, I think God is like this, or I imagine that God is like that, or I just feel that this is what God must be like. And frankly, we are not given permission or the privilege to speculate on who God is. We have actually had a revelation of God. God has revealed himself to us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus actually said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we have a glimpse. We have a good, we have a good picture of who God is. And so our understanding of God then will influence everything else about our lives, including our prayer life. Now, what we know about God is, of course, he's all-knowing, he's omniscient, he is all-powerful, he is omnipotent, he is omnipresent, he is everywhere present. We know that he is holy, he is just, he is kind, he is loving, he is faithful. We know all of these things about God. The one attribute of God that I want to focus in on today, which I think most directly affects our motivation for prayer, is the characteristic of God, which is his goodness. God is a good God. God is good. And that is who he is. That is what he is. He is a good God. Now, a frequent question that comes up from people who are questioning God's existence, 
from people who are agnostic, they don't believe, they're perhaps even atheistic. The, uh, the common question that comes up is this, if there is a God, then why is there so much evil in the world? Thinking that somehow that's a profound question. Actually, that's a simple question. That's easy to answer. It's very simple. The answer is this, the reason there's evil in the world is because God made human beings with freedom of choice. We are free moral agents. And more times than not, human beings choose to do what is wrong and bad rather than what is right and good. And the consequences of that produce all kinds of destruction and dysfunction and evil in the world. It's easy to explain why there's evil in the world. Let's flip the question over. Rather than asking the question, if there's a God, why is there so much evil? How about asking it this way? If there isn't a God in the heavens, then how can you explain the presence of so much good in the world? There's good everywhere, all around us. I mean, you just look around this room today and you say, well, that's, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good here. A lot of good people. A lot of good gets done just by the people in this room. So there's good everywhere. The real question, the more challenging question, the more difficult question to explain is how in the world can you, can you account for all the good that exists in our world? And there's only one answer for that question. And the answer is that a good God influences his created order for good. The only thing good about you is what God has put in you. The only thing good about anything in the world is what God has created and orchestrated by the wonders of his grace. That's good preaching so far, right? So, so now hear this. God is a good God. He is a good, good God. And because he's always good, that affects our perspective of God and the way we pray. Now in your outline, you'll see a few points. Here's the first one. Write this down. God's plans for my life will always be good. Since God is a good God, God's plans for my life will always be good. Now, there's some things that God cannot do. I want to course over that. Listen, some things God cannot do. What cannot God do? He can't deny himself. He can't lie. He can't do evil. He can't change. Here's one that Dr. Billy Graham based his whole ministry on. God can never turn a deaf ear to a repentant sinner. So someone who's sincerely turning from their sins and toward God, a person who prays in that way, God always hears that prayer. He can't turn. God cannot turn a deaf ear to that kind of praying. And so there are some things that God cannot do. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I know what I've planned for you, says the Lord. I have good plans. Everyone say good plans. Good plans for you, not plans to hurt you. My plans will give you a hope. Say a hope. Yeah, and a good future. And when you call to me and you pray, I will listen to you. So everything God does is good. And so because God is good, God's plans for my life will always be good. I have good plans for you, a hopeful future for you. So God, God made you to be the focus of his love and to give you a good and purposeful life. That's what's all about you. So, no, I'm just here by accident. No, no. Listen, there are no accidental children, no accidental parents. You may not have planned a certain course of your life, but God knew all along that you would be here. And you were here because he wants to you to be the focus and affection of his love. And he has a great plan for your life, a good plan. So God has stored up blessings for you because he's a good God 
and he has good things in store. Now, let me just remind you that we live in the midst of this good working God in a world that is broken. The world's broken. The world is not perfect. To state the obvious. Now, heaven, that's going to be perfect. That's where there's no sorrow, sadness, sickness, or suffering. But in this world, Jesus said you'll have tribulation. It's broken. For example, your body is broken. Can I get a witness? Now, these are the old people. If you're young, you don't, you don't believe your body's broken, just stay alive, sister. It'll occur to you. It's broken. Yeah. Your, our minds are broken. Can't think the way we do, recall the way we want. Our minds are broken. Everything is broken. Think about it. The weather's broken. The economy's broken. Relationships are broken. Everything on this planet is broken. But in the midst of bad things that happen, even bad things that happen to good people, God is at work. A good God is at work bringing good from that. This is the verse that we all rely on. It's a beautiful promise. Look at it on the screen, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, see, this isn't a promise made to everyone, but those, to those who love God called to his purposes. But God promises to bring good. Uh, I like this illustration. It's a simple illustration. I think you'll understand that the ingredients that you put into a cake when you're making a cake individually are not good. They don't taste good. For example, flour by itself or raw eggs or vanilla or baking powder or Crisco oil, these are not in and of themselves good. But you put them all together, blend them all together into a batter, and it's, hmm, that's good. You make a cake out of that. So here's what. God wants to take the bitter put it in the batter, and make you better. <laughs> see how it works? Try to say that real fast five times. You'll see how that works. Remember the story of Joseph, powerful story in the Old Testament. Joseph had a bunch of brothers, and they resented him because he was kind of the special one. And so they, they betrayed Joseph, and they sold him into slavery. And then from there, he's in, in a house called Potiphar, and he's falsely accused and then thrown into prison. So he goes from slavery to imprisonment. Years and years go by. And Joseph is uh, languishing under these circumstances. Horrible, bad things happening to a really good guy. But God had a plan for him, a good plan for him. And eventually, providentially, sovereignly, God just elevates Joseph to arguably the most powerful position in the world. And he gives him wisdom. And so uh, prior to a big famine that's going to come to the whole known world, he starts storing up grain. And so he's ready for the famine. And then when the world begins to starve, they all come to the feet of Joseph begging for life and for food. And it's in that occasion then that Joseph's brothers, who believe that Joseph is long since gone and dead, they stand before Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And Joseph finally reveals himself to them to his brothers and to his extended family who are all starving to death and now at the mercy of Joseph. It's a fascinating story. And Joseph looks at them and he offers this statement, very powerful. He said, your plan was to hurt me, but God turned your evil plan into a good plan to save the lives of many people. That's Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And friends, all of us can pray this prayer, can make this statement. Think about it. 
something happened to you, devised plans by another person or by the devil himself or by your own corrupt heart and, dis, and dysfunctional ways, there was, a, there, was, there was a circumstance, a series of events that actually pointed you towards destruction. Joseph said, your plan was to hurt me, to destroy me. But the next phrase, watch it now, but God. And this is our testimony, isn't it? All kinds of bad circumstances piled up, and it looks like we're going to go under, but God. It looks like we're at the end of our rope, and there's no strength to hang on, but God. There's no way out. There's no way through. There's no way over. There's no way around. But God intervened in our lives, a good God intervening in our lives and bringing good out of our suffering. Now, that's called redemptive suffering. Sometimes you suffer because God's trying to do something in you. Sometimes you suffer for the sake of others. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. That's called redemptive suffering. And God will allow us to go through that to bring redemption, to bring good out of it. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 3. So we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they are good for us. They help us learn patient endurance. So God is at work. Let me just remind you, you're not taking your car to heaven. Wait, what? No. You're not taking your car to heaven. You're not taking your cash to heaven. You're not. You're not taking your career to heaven. Spend your whole life using all your energy, all your time, all your effort, all your passion to build a career. You're not taking that with you. You're not taking your mother's china to heaven. Let that soak in. That's the worst one I to try to accept. You're not taking your, your grandmother's china to heaven. You're not. The only thing you're taking to heaven is you and your godly character. So everything God does in my life, he does for my good. Now, here's number two. Write this down. God always gives me what I need, not what I deserve. Always gives me what I need, not what I deserve. From our text, Psalm 103, look at this on the screen again. He's not treated us as we deserve for our sins or paid us back for our wrongs. He has taken our sins away and removed them as far as the east is from the west. So Jesus died for our sins. That means you don't have to pay for your own sins. Jesus already satisfied the penalty of sin. And because he did, you don't have to. So the deal isn't Jesus died for our sins and you have to pay for them too. That's double jeopardy. That's against the law. It breaks the rule. Only one has to satisfy the penalty. And Jesus has done it. You remember King David? He had everything. Had everything going for him. The status, the wealth, everything the world had to offer. And here's the king. And the king stumbles because, as is often true in history, men who have too much time and too much money get in trouble. And King David got in trouble. It was the time when men go out to war. He should have been out on the front lines with his army. But instead, he's back at the palace, and he notices this woman Bathsheba. He falls into, into temptation and into sin with Bathsheba. They conceive a child, and then he conspires to have Bathsheba's husband murdered so it'll cover their sin. So here's King David, the man after God's own heart. He's, he's adding to his sin resume these sins, adultery, conspiracy, and murder. It's very serious. Very serious. And you think to the, yourself, this guy's disqualified. I mean, anybody mess up like that, 
I mean, he's out. We can't trust this guy anymore. But that's not in the economy of God's grace because God sends the prophet to David and, and reminds him of his sin. And now David, who comes to his senses, and he prays. And his prayer is found in Psalm 51. And let me just say before I read the words of his prayer that if you are a person within the sound of my voice today and you are engaged in a serious sin, then you need to come clean and you need to pray Psalm 51 and begin there with a repentant heart. There's a young man who approached me last night after I preached this sermon and privately he got to me and he said, I need to confess to you that I'm engaged in an adulterous affair with a woman who's not my wife. And I took him by the hand and I looked him in the eye, pulled him close to me and I said, you stop it. You stop it right now. And you smarten up because nothing good will come of it. Only, only destruction, only pain, only grief. He said, Psalm 51. I said, that's the prayer you start with. And then you begin to live your life in an honorable way. And you go home and you love your wife and fulfill your covenant vow to her. David prayed, God, in your goodness, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Wash away my guilt. Make me clean again. From my sin, cleanse me, he prayed. That's the place to start, Psalm 51. Sir, ma'am, that's where you go. Today. And that's where you start. So let me make this real clear to you. God only forgives you. Watch it now. But And not, he forgives you not because you're good, not because you deserve it, not because we have merited God's forgiveness. God forgives because he's good, not because you're good. This is a really important distinction. And not only does he forgive you, but he welcomes you back. This is hard for us humans. Someone does something really grievous against us, we, we might eventually come to forgive them, but we don't ac actually include them anymore. <laughs> Well, okay, what you did, I forgive you, but you can't come to Thanksgiving anymore. I mean, it's, that's, just, ah, that's out. So, but God, in the richness of his goodness and mercy, he forgives. And then he reclaims back to the family, back to the fold. It's an amazing thing. And so God is with you. He is good. He is always good. He is never bad. Look at Psalm 27, verse 10. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. My enemies are waiting for me to fall, yet I remain confident that I will see the goodness of the Lord while I'm living here in the world. Isn't that warm? Do you feel, do you, do you feel the tenderness there? This is God inviting you to be forgiven and to come home. So God's plan is always good, and God always gives us what we need rather than what we deserve. Here's number three. Write this down. God puts my good above his own good. God puts my good above his own good. Now, This will take a little bit to get your mind around this. But think about it in this way. Every time in history where you see a kingdom with a king or a queen, you know, the prince, the princess, any time in history or any time you read it in, in, um, in the imagination of authors, you know, the fictional accounts, the fairy tales of these kingdoms, 
the story always unfolds like this. The king must be protected. The queen must be preserved. The princess, the prince, they must live on. And so all of the commoners and all of the soldiers and all of the and, 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 and all of the, the lowest in the strata of the society, they have to give, they have to suffer, they have to die in order to protect the king. And so you got the peasants who are always suffering for the sake of the king. And when you, when you hear the story, you go, well, that's noble. You know, that's the way it should work. And that's how life is. And we want to preserve the kingdom, therefore the queen has to be preserved. But watch what Jesus did in the gospel. Watch what Jesus has done for us. He's completely flipped that story upside down. And what we find in the gospel is that the king of kings and the Lord of all lords has actually died for the peasants. That the king who is exalted above all kings in all of history actually submitted himself suffering and giving his lives for the commoners. You never see this. This is how you know that the gospel is not a fairy tale. That's how you know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's how you know something unique and special and powerful is at work in the world. Because the king has died for the peasants. The shepherd has died for the sheep. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. It's a great deal. It's, a, it's amazing love. Look at John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. I know my own sheep, and they know me, and I will sacrifice my life for the sheep. Mm -hmm. John 15, the greatest love you can have is to give your life for others. And that's precisely what Jesus did. It's a great deal. You remember the TV game show, Let's Make a Deal? Still on. Let's Make a Deal it used to be Monty Hall, and now there's other hosts on the, on the program. The Three Doors. Choose one of the doors. Here's door number one. Door number one opens, it's you. And you are defined, declared, you're a sinner going to hell. Door number one. Pick door number one, you're a sinner. Your sins have separated you from God. There is no hope for you, therefore, you're going to hell. You don't want to choose door number one. Door number two. It's you again as a sinner, but now you're handed a shovel. And you're given this opportunity. You're a sinner, separated from God. The consequences of your sin is death and eternal punishment, but here's a shovel, and you've got 70 or 80 years, and we're going to give you the opportunity to dig as quickly as, and thoroughly and well-intentionedly as you can until you can unpack yourself from this horrible burden of sin. So work as hard as you can, be as good as you can, do as much good as you can, try to make up as rigorously as you can for the consequences of your own sin. Oh, by the way, can't be done can't be done you can't try hard enough you can't accomplish enough it's too much so that's door number two but here's door number three you might want to pick door number three and when door number three opens up here's Jesus of Nazareth standing there with his nail scarred hands reaching out for you and the message is this you don't have to pay for your sins I have paid for you. So the gift of eternal life and forgiveness, love and acceptance is offered to you freely as a gift. You don't have to earn it. And it's not because you're good. And it's not because you try hard. It's because God is good. And God is rich in mercy and love. And he extends to you 
the free gift. That's a big deal. That's a good deal. That's a good deal. Listen, friends, you want to pick door number three because it's the best deal that's ever been offered to humanity. And so now you understand the motivation behind a church like Union Chapel. This is, this is why we offer Christ to people and have done so for decades. This is why we baptize folks in Jesus' name. We'll do that in a couple of weeks. We're going to have another 15 or so people baptized. It's a beautiful, beautiful expression. This is why we do it. This is why we do acts of service in our community to express the love of God in practical ways. This is why we fund and support so many local agencies and mission posts. This is why we, this is why we fund missionaries, cross-cultural missionaries in various parts of the world who are doing strategic things for Jesus' sake. This is why we're planting churches, believing that God has called us to plant churches so that the numbers of people that we reach for Jesus' sake in the next number of years will be more people than we've reached in all the years prior to that. It's why we do it, because this is a deal. What a deal. What a great deal. The wonderful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ toward us. Yeah. Here's number four. Write this down. Got to go quicker right now. God does not say yes to every prayer. Because he's good, God doesn't say yes to every prayer. Last week I mentioned facetiously that there are four kinds of prayer, answers to prayer that God gives us. One is yes, one is no, one is not yet, and the other is, are you kidding? <laughs> Got to be joking. But here's what happens in reality when the request is not right. You know, the caveat is when you ask according to the will of God, God always answers yes to that prayer. But when the prayer's not right, the request isn't right, God says no. God says no. And it's hard for some of us because we say, well, I've been praying and God hasn't answered my prayer. Oh, yeah, he answered. The answer was no. So if the prayer's not right, the request isn't right, God will say no. If the timing's not right, God will say slow, slow down, be more patient, wait. So if the timing's not right, and with regard to things related to the kingdom of God, listen to me carefully, timing is everything. Timing is very important. So if the timing's not quite right, then God says, slow. And if you're not right, God says, well, you know, you need to change. You need to develop some parts of your life. Your character needs to shift. You need to grow. So if the one who praise isn't right, if you're not right, then God says grow. And when you're ready, then the answer to this prayer will come to you. So if the request is not right, it's no. If the timing is, is not right, then it's slow. If you're not right, then it's grow. But in all these things, God gives perspective. One day, the mother of James and John, James and John were two of the 12 disciples. They were brothers. The mother of James and John, she comes to Jesus and she says, I got a request, Lord. Now, this is the mother of these boys. And she loves her boys. She thinks her boys are the best thing ever. She loves them and she just knows everybody agrees with her that they're the best and there's no one better. And so she has this request of Jesus. She said, now, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I just got this small little request. If you don't mind, because you know my boys are special, James and John, they're precious, aren't they? And so... If you don't mind, have one of them sit on your right hand and the other on your left hand. When you come into your kingdom, just let the boys be first and second chair. Now, John is there. John goes, Mom, please, don't. He's embarrassed. Stop it, Mom. She said, shh. And she turns back to Jesus, puts her, puts her pretty, she's got her, everything's, she's trying hard. 
And Jesus simply looks at her and says, you don't understand what you're asking. You don't have the perspective you need to get an, an answer to this prayer. You don't really comprehend well what you're asking for. And so Jesus reminded her, as he reminds us, that sometimes the answer doesn't come in the form that we desire. Now, we can just be honest about this. Can we be real? When things are good, it's easy to trust that God is good. When things are going well in your life, it's easy to believe that God has good things in store. The challenge, the confrontation to the notion that God is good is when things are bad in our lives. Isn't that right? That's when, that's when, the, that's when the rubber hits the road. That's when our feet are on the pavement. That's, that's when real stuff happens, when life isn't good. You know, I stood up about two years ago, and I announced to our congregation that we were going to plant 10 new churches in the next 10 years. And we, and we are off and running, and amazing things are happening. Very exciting stuff is going on. It's just miraculous, marvelous, just wonderful, so exciting. And I make this announcement. And within weeks of making this announcement, because a good God's going to help us do good things and reach good people, it's going to, going to be awesome. And within weeks of making that kind of announcement, my wife Beth is diagnosed for the second time with breast cancer. And so here we go again. And then there's a big surgery, and then there's radiation and chemotherapy, and I'm holding the bucket while she's vomiting in it, and her hair's falling out, and I'm actually, I'm actually the one who t takes her outside and shaved her head. I did that. That hurt me. Because I just want my, life, my wife to live. I don't want her to die. And I don't care if it takes a miracle or if it takes medicine or both. I don't care. I just don't want to lose my wife. But going through two years of that, all that process, surgery after surgery, et cetera, et cetera, now you have to ask the question this way. Is God still good when your wife has cancer? And the answer is, yeah. Yes, he is. He's still good. I've never said this out loud, but there are two prayers that I've been personally praying for 40 years. I've walked with God now almost 50 years. There, there are two prayers I've been praying for 40 years. I haven't gotten an answer to either one of them. For 40 years, I pray them all the time. Almost daily, I pray these prayers. God, would you... Is God still good when he doesn't answer a prayer for 40 years? Yeah. Yeah, he's still good. What about when you lose someone precious to you? Someone so precious to you, you love them so much that if you had the choice, you would give up your life just like that to save them, to provide for them. You wouldn't even, it wouldn't be a, a, a moment's hesitation. Yes, I, I surrender my life for that person. You'd do it. How about when that person dies of illness or accident is God still good yeah God is still good he is a good God and he has good in store for you he has plans that are purposeful 
and good if you love him and you trust him. Job is the perfect example of this. He lost everything in the Bible. Lost his health, lost his wealth, lost his children, lost his farm, lost everything. His wife and his three friends, quote, friends, finally said to him, Job, you're pitiful. God has abandoned you. God has given up on you. Stop trusting in God. Just curse God and die. It's the only thing you've got left. You're, you, are, you, are, you are delusional to think that you can still trust God after everything that's happened to you. And this was Job's response. Job said, and I quote, the Lord gives and he takes away. He gives and he takes away. And in the midst of all of that, my heart will continue to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Mm -hmm. There you go. Mm -hmm. Because God is good. God is good. Not everything that happens in the world is good. No. Not everything that happens to you is God's will. No. We live in a broken world. Stuff happens. Bad things happen to good people. But in the midst of all of that, God is good. And if you don't believe that, if you misunderstand that ultimate truth, then your prayers will be passionless, they will be pointless, and they will be powerless. Because you'll chuck away prayer just like that if you don't believe God is with you and God is good. But I'm here to tell you today that God is with you and God is good. I want to challenge you this week to pray three prayers. First prayer is this, God, I pray that you will renew me personally. Renew me personally. Second of all, God, pray that you will renew our small group, the small group I'm in. I assume you're all in a small group. If you're not, what's the matter with you? <laughs> Sign up and get in a small group. It will help you. The reason you're here today, the reason I love you, the reason I love being your pastor is because I know why you come. The reason you come here is because it helps you. You want to be a better person. And this will help you. This will be right in line with your goal. So do it. Pray that your small group will be revived. And then thirdly, pray that our church will be revived. That I'll be revived personally. That my group, my closest friends will be revived. And that this whole church will be revived. Would you pray that? So we are in these 40 days. And I invite us to prayer. Let's pause just for a moment. Talk to God about these things. Bow your heads. Lord, we hear the words of Psalm 119, which say, Lord, keep me from paying attention to what is worthless. Let me live instead by your word. I want to obey your principles, so please renew my life with your goodness. What a great prayer. Here's Lamentations 5. Bring us back to you, God. Bring us back to you. We're ready to come back, so give us a fresh start. Beautiful. Father, you are a good, good father. And Lord, I know that there are many people in this room right now who are in pain. You're still a good, good father. We've all had prayers that weren't answered the way we want them to be answered. You're still a good, good father. So help us to remember that your plan for our lives is always good. 
So we choose your plan, not ours. Help us to remember that you always give us what we need, not what we deserve. Thank you. And thank you that you not only forgive us, but you pour your goodness into us. You're not so angry that you exclude us, but you include us. You welcome us, welcome us home. And thank you that you put your good above our good. You did that through your son at the cross by dying for the sheep. The king died for the peasants. You didn't spare your own son, so certainly you will help us. And so, Lord, even though we don't always understand, we thank you that you don't always say yes to us every time we pray, that your goal is to make us better, more mature. And thank you that you've invited us to live with you forever in heaven. So, friends, as we pray this prayer, as we conclude this service today, and in honor of Dr. Graham, if you're a person in this room right now, just a single person, and you've never opened your life to Christ, I encourage you to do that right now. Do it before you leave. I'm going to pray a prayer right now, and I'll say the words, you believe them in your heart, and as we've rehearsed, God will hear your prayer. Here are the words. Jesus Christ, I want to accept your gift of heaven, your gift of forgiveness. I accept your gift of new life in Jesus Christ. And so I want a relationship with him. So today I put my trust in Jesus. And from this day forward, I choose to live for Jesus' sake. In his name I pray. Now everyone say it out loud, amen.